church, on this uh, 4th of July weekend, we want to pray for our nation. Hear the scripture. This is Psalm 4, verses 2 through 8. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's, let's pray. Lord, on this July the 4th weekend of 2015, we stop to pray for our nation. We, we earnestly intercede and pray for those in authority on the national, state, and local level. We, we pray as the people of God called out by you to fellowship with the triune God through the work of Christ. And, and the scripture says in First Peter that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So as the people of God in this nation, we pray, Lord, that your standards would be true in our lives and would extend beyond us to those around us. We pray that you give us leaders who understand what the scripture says when it says righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people forgive us for being people who as the psalmist says here turn your honor into shame who have words upon words that do not reflect our hearts God change us and use us I, we pray for the glorious heritage of this great nation and that, Lord, you would stay the hand of judgment that rightly should fall upon us and that you would make us a church and a people in this nation that seeks to honor you. So, so please do that. Please, God. And just when people around us say, where is your God? May we cry out from our hearts, Lord, let the light of your face shine upon us. And Lord, as you do that, may we experience the reality of the psalmist here who says, I have more joy in my heart than people without the Lord have when their grain and new wine abound, that I will lie down and sleep in peace and safety and comfort because the Lord God reigns. So Lord, when times are difficult, we still lay down at night and we say the Lord God reigns. When times are very good, we lay down at night and we say, the Lord God reigns. So bless us. Use us as salt in this culture and as a light on a hill. In Jesus' name, amen. The Old Testament prophet Hosea, in a well-known passage, said this, They have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It seems that we as a 
culture in the West, and especially since we're Americans reflecting on our culture, are reaping the whirlwind. We've steadfastly walked in the path of destruction in the area especially of seemingly human sexuality. To be very clear, sexuality is a gift from a loving God to be thoroughly enjoyed and embraced in marriage between a man and a woman. But we have abandoned the standard and have used physical intimacy as a self-serving means to establish our individual autonomy. There's a man named Malcolm Muggeridge, a great thinker from Great Britain who lived in the last century, came to faith later in life. And Muggeridge, I won't tell you the exact quote because it's pretty graphic. I'll give you the PG version. Muggeridge says that when man walks away from the living God and his standards, it results in two things. Either a raised fist in the face of God or a sense of super-independence in the area of our sexuality. The Bible says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage is a wonderful gift, and sexuality is a wonderful gift for marriage. But we've come along since the late 60s, and we've lived through this. Many of us have lived through this. We've come along with a little statement that goes like this. It's the ethics of intimacy, which means that sexuality is something that you, the best of us, can use when uh, we feel that the recipient that we're hanging out with is worthy of that gift. The Scripture says that children are a heritage from the Lord. and Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. But we say, no, children is on, are only to be good if it's for me and my timing. And since 1973 in Roe v. Wade, we've used abortion as a means of birth control and gender selection and personal convenience. This is a great sadness to the heart of God. Our Lord said with great passion during his sojourn on the earth, whatever the Lord joins together, man should never separate. He went on and said that the cause for marital dissolution is adultery, sexual sin. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says also willful desertion breaks marriage. If a spouse walks away from the marriage and will not be reconciled, the Bible says treat him as if you were a tax collector, a non-believer. But we live in a land of no-fault divorce where you divorce for any and every reason. We view marriage as a self-help contract that can be easily discarded at our whim. Again, the autonomous self. And whenever I read Malachi, I'm always struck with what the last book of the Old Testament says when it says to the people of God that they, they come with worship and they, they weep in worship and they sing in worship and they present themselves in worship. But God says your worship is useless. Listen. Malachi 2.13, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer accepts your offerings with favor from your hand, but you say, why does he not accept them? And Malachi's answer, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. So we have grown accustomed to a standard of godlessness that has led to apathy and disarray. 
We have sown the wind, and now we're reaping the whirlwind. So our approach to sexuality, family, marriage, children, screams the autonomous self. I call the shots. It's my body. I'll do what I want. So really 10 days ago with the Supreme Court decision, I was totally unhinged and still am. And in light of the tragedy at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, and the, 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 our city has just been under, a, a, to me, a heaviness. I'm shocked that we've redefined marriage. I'm shocked that we continue to push the boundaries out, and it grieves me. And I think of, of, of the words of, of David in Psalm 3. This is an amazing psalm to me. Psalm, I was thinking, reading and praying this week and just pondered Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is written by David basically in a cave. He's being pursued by his son, Absalom, who wants to kill his dad and take the throne. I can't fathom. I can't, I can't fathom what David's going through. He leaves Jerusalem with just a, a band of people, and, and there's a man who comes out and curses David and throws rocks at him. And his friends want to run him through with their sword, and David said, leave him alone. Leave him alone. Basically saying, that, that is a, a picture of what I'm going through. And so David is in a cave hiding from his son, And he writes this song. Just the first three verses. He says, oh, oh Lord, how many are my foes? That's an understatement. How, how many are those arising against me? Many. Many are, are, are those who are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. They're everywhere. But then he says this, but, but, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. You are the lifter of my head. You're my glory. I'm thinking, wow. You're in a cave. You're being pursued by your son. People are speaking against you. You're with a band of, of faithful brothers, but they're not many. And, 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 and you, David, looked to the Lord and said, but Lord, you're a shield around me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. And that's where we need to run. There's a time to mourn, but never forget God. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a time to mourn over your own sin, over the sin around you, over the sin of your culture. There's a time to mourn, but we should say, God, give us perspective. Because as you go down the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses two incredible metaphors. He, he, says, he says, first of all, he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything except to be cast out and trampled under the foot of man. He says, therefore, do not lose your saltiness. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put the light on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So I, I just look at these metaphors and I go, you know, you're, you're the salt of the earth. It says, don't lose your saltiness. Now, now, salt in the day of the Lord was not seasoning. It was preservative. And we salt our food to heighten the flavor. They salted their food to preserve it from the desert heat. So, so Christians, he's saying, my people, my called out people, living in a culture where they're the minority, that they're to preserve righteous standards by the way they live and the way they think and the way they speak 
as they influence people. And, but he says this, don't lose your saltiness. In other words, you cling to the Lord. My dad is 85, uh, excuse me, 90 years old. A child of depression, World War II vet, hardworking man. My, my dad grew up with not much. He, uh, my grandmom and granddad ran the local jail. And my dad and his siblings lived in the basement of the jail for six years. So I always tell people my dad spent six years in prison as a young man. And uh, he, he literally did. Uh, didn't grow up with anything. Uh, his life was manual labor, carpeting, putting carpet linoleum, tile, hardworking guy. And he, he had a few statements I'll never forget. I sometimes say to my dad, I said, Dad, Dad what, what's going on with person X? Or what's wrong with, he'd say, son, he's not worth the dynamite it would take to blow him up. Now, that's not a real nice thing to say, but he said it frequently. And, and uh, Jesus says here, you know, don't, don't lose your saltiness. Don't, don't lose your saltiness. And so as, as we walk in this culture, I say we need to cling to the Lord. He doesn't call us to be separatists or to do the monk thing or to be quasi-nomadic, but he calls us to be preservatives, to make a difference. And then he says you're the light of the earth. He says, you know, if you have a beautiful candelabra that's giving light, you don't put a blanket over it. Or you put, don't put it under a basket. You lift it up. So the light can go to the whole house, permeate the whole house. So I say to us, church, we are salt and we are light. We are salt and we are light. And we do that, we need to ponder these verses continuously. This is the spirit we do it in. First Peter is written to a church in persecution, going into deeper persecution. And it says this in chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. So step number one, always be Christ-centered. Step two, always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered by those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. Not, not if you're slandered, but when you're slandered. You live in such a way that you answer with gentleness and respect. You don't put people down. You listen, you care, you respond with grace and dignity. But first of all, you sanctify Jesus in your heart. You're a Christ worshiper. I said last week, the, the verse in Micah, the Old Testament prophet, who was writing to the northern and southern kingdom about returning to God. And then Micah 6, 8, a verse that is very well known. It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord desire of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Think about that. You, you do justly, you're a person of justice, and you pursue hesed or loving kindness. And you walk humbly. That is a very difficult combination. And you only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we walk before people, as we live out our faith in our neighborhoods, you just, just love people in your jobs. Love people and speak the name of Christ. And, 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 and Say, God, show me what it means to be a person of justice, a person who pursues loving kindness, and a person who walks humbly with you. But in your heart, 
Sanctify Christ as the Lord. C.S. Lewis wrote this book, The Four Loves. I referenced it last week. It's a great book. But, but he says this, you know, about the issue of allegiances. Let me just read part of it. He says, we must, when we are in conflict with our loved ones, these, these are strong words, we must be blind to tears and deaf to pleadings. It is too late when the crisis comes to begin telling a wife or a husband or a mother or a friend that your love all along had a secret reservation under God. They ought to have been warned not to be sure explicitly, but by the implication of a thousand talks, by the principle reserve, revealed in hundreds of decisions upon small matters. And what he's saying is this. He says, you know, when, when, when the standards of your families and the culture they live in come in conflict with the Scripture, they should not be surprised. They should understand from the get-go, my allegiance ultimately is to Christ. I love you. But love is doing that which is best for other people in light of eternity. So my ultimate allegiance is to Christ. Don't let it be a huge surprise. Teach your children the way of the Lord. Let them know that you want to walk in the way of the Lord. Sanctify Christ in your heart. There's a hymn I've been singing this week. It's written by a young man in the 1870s who was graduating from a seminary named Andover Seminary. And it's called Lead On with King Eternal. And he's writing this for his classmates. So let me just read the first stanza. It says, Lead On with King Eternal, the day of March has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, thy tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. He's saying from this day forward, as we go out from this seminary, as God called ministers, your tents shall be our home. We say that for all believers. And we sing the battle song. But the second stanza is the one I've been really singing. Lead on, O King Eternal, we follow not with fears. For gladness breaks like morning where'er thy face appears. Thy cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light. Lead on, O God. Let's see, the crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. He, he says, we follow not with fears. For, for glad, listen, gladness breaks like morning where'er your face appears. We want to see God. We get there because thy cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light. The crown, the reward of judgment, the crown awaits the conquest. A faithful life. Lead on, O God of might. Forever faithful. Forever faithful. So, so that's our calling. We're called to be people who walk with the Lord. So which brings us to Romans 12, a passage we've been dealing with. And Romans 12 says this, Let your love be without hypocrisy. Verse 9, abhor what is evil, cling or hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Let your love be without hypocrisy, which means let your love be genuine, let your love be consistent, let your love be centered upon the reality of the Lord. See, see, see the, the issue is if we have friends who are involved in, they claim the name of Christ, and they're involved in ongoing unrepentant sin, the Bible says they have no hope in eternity. Let me read this to you. This is 1 Corinthians 6, a passage we would do well to ponder much. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 
9 and following. Listen. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. So there are people at the church at Corinth, former swindlers, former immoral people, former idolaters, former deceits, but they've been saved. So, so I, I, I read this and I, I go, you know, if, if, I, if I claim, if I go to church and I sing and I em- embrace people, and yet in my business practices, I'm defrauding widows of their pensions and I'm a liar and a cheat. You know what? I have no hope for the kingdom of God. Because the Holy Spirit changes you. Now, now, we all sin, but we don't stay in our sin. If I, as a man, just say, well, every other quarter, once a quarter, whatever, I just, I just sleep around. I just go on a business trip. I get with another woman, and I'm sexually with her. And that's just who I am. That's what I do. But boy, I'm, I'm in church when I'm in town. You know what? You're a liar. And you have no hope unless you repent and walk in the way of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, He changes us. So, so if we leave people in their sin, they face an eternity of judgment. See, love does what's best for other people in light of eternity. And we need to speak that to ourselves. So, so let's go to the text now. So number one, abhor what is evil. Detest it. Vehemently dislike it. Abhor what is evil. It's, it's, not a, 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 it's not a soft statement. It's just like, detest it. You, you hate it. You hate it in you. You hate it. You just, you just, you hate it. Because, you know, Superman, if you are Superman, he hated what? Kryptonite. Kryptonite. Sin is kryptonite to the believer. Unconfessed, unrepentant. Sin is, is kryptonite to the believer. I was talking about this passage this week with somebody, and they said, you know, the trajectory of evil is never good. That's true. And I thought of Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs 1, it says this, verse 32 and 33, it says, For the simple are killed by turning away. They're killed by turning away. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. Complacent, it destroys you, complacency. Complacency versus abhor, detest evil. But those who listen to me will dwell in security. And they'll be at ease without dread of disaster. Now, I want that for me and you. Dwell in security. At ease without dread of fearful craving of, of, of disaster. And yet, as one commentary says about this passage, unfortunately, familiarity with the culture that has been shaped by the forces of darkness and Satan has lulled too many believers into a state of general tolerance for whatever deviant behavior is in vogue at the moment. Lulled. See, 1 John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So, so there's a part of our creation that is glorious and wonderful, and it bears the images of, of eternity, and it's, one, it's just, but then there are other aspects of the culture that are just deeply fallen into darkness. And he, he, he talks about, he says, the lust of the flesh, wanting more and more and more. Sensuality, the lust of the eyes, greed, covetousness, and the pride of life, thinking you're one-upmanship on everybody else. It's not of the Father, but it's from the dark side, the dark side of the world. And, and so Paul says here, abhor the evil. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you an example, and, and you're going to go, man, this is weird, but I'm going to give you an example. So I saw a very dangerous movie recently. You say, man, this is strange. It's a Nicholas Sparks movie. It's on Netflix. It was free, so I watched it. You know, uh, the best, the best of me. Yeah, the best of me. Now, Nicholas Sparks. I, I, I saw uh, the Notebook, which I thought was very good. So I think that's the only the other thing. Nicholas Sparks wrote Braveheart and The Best of Me. That's a joke. Okay, he didn't write Braveheart. He's, Anyway, so spoiler alert, I'm just going to tell you this storyline because I think all of his movies basically have the same theme, okay? Here, here's the background. There's a, uh, a young man from a horrible family who, as he grows to maturity, is a man of, of integrity and courage, as a high school senior, does the right thing, uh, ends up being befriended by a, a wonderful man, lives in his garage, a beautiful senior in high school, daughter of an affluent family in town, and he fall, they, they fall in love. And, uh, and, and they're committed to each other. They're going to get married. They're going to go to college. But in a horrible event, when he's trying to protect a friend, he ends up going to prison for four years. And he refuses to communicate with her because he doesn't want to bind her to him she goes to LSU, which is probably a mistake in the larger scheme of things. And, and so while she's at LSU, she falls in love and marries a guy, and he gets out, and he becomes an attorney. And as the story unfolds, they both drink too much, and she quits drinking. He doesn't quit drinking, and they have two children. The daughter dies. The son lives, and uh, he, he is a regrettable man. He likes his golf game and his job probably more than her. And you understand that. So 21 years later, through a series of events, she and the love of her life are thrown together one more time. And so as they come together and they see each other, the violins play. Whenever you're watching a love story and the violins play, you know where we're going. Have you ever noticed in a love story they never play the accordion and then they get together? <laughs> it's never the tuba. You know, it's always the violin. So the violins play and they... They find that they're the one, they have one true love. He's never married. He's lives on a, been on an oil rig saving lives, and he's just a wonderful guy. And, and she's there, and they meet each other, and it's beautiful, and they become physically intimate. And so I just paused and looked at my wife and said, so we're basically pulling for the dissolution of a marriage and adultery. No big deal. Nicholas Sparks, PG-13. So you can walk away from a marriage to a difficult man. Well, every woman here is married to a difficult man. <laughs> if you're not, please see me afterwards. See, I'm serious. I mean, yeah, he, was, he needed to have, a, he needed Jesus, her husband did. He needed a character. He, he needed, but, but you know, you, you, 
If it's tough, you don't say, well, adios. But yeah, this is Nicholas Sparks. It's not, you know, edgy stuff from Europe. Okay. Shown at the Terrace Theater. $10 a ticket. This is Nicholas Sparks, free on Netflix. Just chip, chip, chip at the base. I, and so to me, every time you turn around, it's just a chip. It's just, it's just, so I say it is a dangerous movie. I say, well, so you go home, you talk to your friends. Why'd you find it today? Nicholas Sparks is dangerous. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the worldview is just chip. chip. It's just there, it's just everywhere. Detest evil. I, I, this, let me tell you something. I'm an older guy. If you stay here and live here on your knees and worship the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it will save you from 1,000 heartaches. I see couples here, one's getting married next weekend, one just got engaged, other people starting out in their journey. If you stay here, it will save you from 1,000 heartaches in the next two decades easily because God is good and His way is good. I think of Proverbs 4 all the time that says that, 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 that the path... The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until full day. But the way, not a path, the way of the wicked is like deep, deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And I've seen it time after the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter. You see people that walk to the Lord and you say, man. And they, but the path of the, uh, of the unrighteous is like deep darkness. They just stumble. So, so, I saw this four weeks ago, and I just went, wow. This article I read. Uh, this is in Spain by a company from Switzerland called Genoma. The company in Switzerland is, is advocating prenatal testing. The, the name of the test is Tranquility. In Spain, 95% of all Down syndrome children are aborted, 95%. And so they push prenatal testing so that if there's a problem, you can get rid of the life in your body. And, and so this firm in Switzerland looked through the Internet, and they found this picture on a family's Facebook talking about how much they loved their little child with Down syndrome, little girl. And they took that picture and put it on a two-story banner advocating prenatal testing so that if your child has Down syndrome, you may abort a child that will look like this. To say at least the parents were ticked off. And I hope they get a good lawyer and they sue Genoma into the hinterlands. Now, when I read this story, I thought, this is evil. It's just evil. And Switzerland has either the number one or number two, depends on who you read, standard of living and education and health care in the world. And if you went to a party with these executives from Genoma, they would be urbane and sophisticated, and they would have the best food, and they would be caring and gracious and speak three languages. They're in Switzerland. And if you had the audacity to tell a, an ethnic joke, they would turn away in horror. And yet I'm going to tell you, these, these people are evil. It's just what it is. Yes, they're urbane. Yes, they're sophisticated. Yes, they're educated. 
evil. And it, 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 it breaks my heart. So, so let, let me show you a movie I do recommend. It's called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's about, it's about a family in World War II. The father's a Nazi officer in charge of a concentration camp. And the little boy on the left is his son. The little boy on the right is a Jewish child who wears striped pajamas, as do all the prisoners. And, and the dad is an intelligent, gracious man to other people. He goes to work every day in a chauffeured limousine, and he, he oversees the, the murder of hundreds and thousands of Jewish people. Then he gets back in his limousine, and he drives two miles outside the camp or a mile outside the camp where, where there's a, a large house where he and his wife and his two children and their dog uh, uh, have suffered together as they laugh and they're served by men and women in striped pajamas, Jewish people, and they talk and they care for one another as they listen to Bach. And it's evil. It's evil. And I just do not be seduced by the culture. There's a mean streak in hating evil in yourself. Jesus talked about mortification. Jesus says if your right hand causes you to sin, allegorically, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to go to heaven with your body maimed than go to hell with a whole body. There's a mean streak that you've got to detest it. So I'm thinking about this, and I'm reading through the book of 2 Kings. and There's a guy in 2 Kings... He's one of my favorite people in the Bible. His name, is, his name is Josiah. In fact, if you're going to have a baby, I would lobby for the name Josiah. It is a good, strong name by a good, strong guy. Josiah becomes the king of, uh, of Judah when he's eight years old. Eight. Eight. He had no godly heritage. Dad and granddad worshipped idols. And so Josiah becomes king, and then when he's 26 years old, 18 years later, he's doing some renovations in the temple, and, and as, they, as, as they are, are renovating the temple, they find a copy of the Law of Moses. Now, this is what's amazing to me. A copy of the Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Something they're supposed to read continuously and think about and read and think about, but for generations, the law has been neglected. The standards have been neglected, but Josiah has a heart for God. And so they find the law. They bring it to the priest. The priest reads it. He says, oh, my. He brings it to the king. The king reads it. He's, and, and when they read the law to Josiah, he tears his clothes in abject poverty and, 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 and in humiliation. We have deserted the living God. We deserve judgment. And, and, and then he says, this is what we're going to do. So the, there's a pattern here. You see the truth, you walk with people of the truth, you stay in the book, you resolve, and you act. So let me just read. This is 2 Kings 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with him, all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. I love that. Everybody. He was with Men whose hearts were inflamed for the glory of God, small and great. So step one, you're with God's people. Step two, you stay in the book. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. Step three, you resolve. 
Verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and with all of his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. So the people of God, the word of God, resolve. And then he acted. I'm, I'm just going to just go through this very quickly. Ten things he did. I'm not, I'm not, this is, to me, amazing. This is the people of God now. But for generations, the law has been dormant. Number one, he, he commanded that the keepers of the threshold bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem. He said, take the vessels that are in the house of the Lord that are dedicated to foreign deities. You've got to be kidding me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Should make a graven image. And you got these vessels in the house of God. He burned them. Number two, he deposed the priest who had done these things. Just got rid of them. Number three, he brought out the Asherah pole from the house of the Lord outside of the book of Jerusalem and he beat it to dust and cast the dust upon the graves of common people who were non-worshippers. So the Asherah pole was a pole dedicated to Baal worship. We're not sure what it looked like, but it was in the house of God. I'm going, really? Next, he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. So that there, there were men who were religious prostitutes in the house of God. He cast them out. He brought the priests out of the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings to other gods. Number six, he, he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of, of the city of Jerusalem. Number seven, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnon, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. The people who named Jehovah, among other gods, were burning their children as an offering on a sacrifice outside Jerusalem. And Josiah said, destroy that. This is breathtaking to me. I'm going, really? Number eight, he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun, S-U-N, at the entrance of the house of the Lord. Horses dedicated to idol worship. There's celebratory parades. Number nine, the altars on the roof of the upper chamber and the altars of the altars he pulled down and broke into pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook. Number 10, the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, his, his ungodly wives. And lastly, verse 24, Josiah put away the mediums and the household gods and the idols of, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Helikah, the priest, had found in the house of the Lord. And before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might. Thus, name your son Josiah. I read that, and I think, God, what is it in my life 
that needs to be ground up and thrown into the brook? What is it in my life that needs to be destroyed? Lord, make me, make us a people like Josiah. We walk in the company of the committed, we take the word of God, we resolve, and we do. And that is how, brothers and sisters, we abhor that which is evil. That's how we fulfill Micah 6, 8, to do justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with God. We play to an audience of one. It's going to surprise you. Shocker. I gave up being trendy years ago. Shocked? I'm quite serious. We can't be trendy and serve God in a fallen culture. Some of you, trendy left the train station years ago. I know that. But for some of you that are younger, that's, that's, that's an issue. That's an issue. I talked to so many young evangelicals, and they said, what if, what if, what if? And I'm going, this is, this is, this is. Made me like Josiah. Number two, we should very quickly, we should, we should cling to what is good. The word for cling is a very graphic word that means to adhere to something with an adhesive grip. You, you cling to the good. You just cling. You cling to people. You, you cling to the people of God. You, and therefore, you're devoted to one another in brotherly affection, and you outdo one another in showing love. But, but you, you cling. And, and you, you find people that are going for it, and you walk with them and say, let's go together. That's what the church should be doing. Hebrews is written to a group of people in the New Testament that are sliding away from the Lord and they're under pressure and it's just hard. And, and so Hebrews 3 says, See to it, brothers, that no one falls short of the grace of God by the deceitfulness of sin. See to it. Walk with each other, laugh with each other, rejoice with each other, weep with each other, but cling. I, I, need, I need the body of Christ. I need people in my life. Who, who just care for me and love me and pray for me and correct me and cling. See, if we're going to go forward, we have got to cling to the good. Not, not think, yeah, the, the good's good, the good's, the good's nice. No, no, you've got to cling to it. I've got to have it. And when you're a, a prophetic minority in a culture, you can't float. You cling. Because you tasted the Lord is good. You cling because he's true. You cling because there's error and darkness and evil. And you want the good and the right, the beautiful. You cling. And you don't cling by floating. So may we be people who walk in the way of the Lord. No. Um, may we abhor what is evil and cling to the good. May, may we be devoted to one another in brotherly love and outdo one another in showing honor, preference, encouragement. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day. Um, thank you that um, whether we're living in the year 2015 or the year 85, 
or the year 1517. Uh, you're unchanging. Your standards are true. And uh, I, I pray we'd be like Josiah of old as we read and continually discover fresh truth from your word. Even over passages we may have studied a hundred times. Holy Spirit, you just bring new understanding. As, as we are like Josiah, I pray that we would walk with the brethren. I, I pray that we keep the book central. I pray that we would resolve and then we would do. And part of doing would be that we would abhor evil in, 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 in us and me. And that, that we would uh, have a vehement dislike that, that is kryptonite to our souls. And that we would um, cling to the good. Thank you that people have done that in my life here year after year after year. And I'm the beneficiary of their friendships. Thank you, Lord. So, blessed be your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bless us as the people of God. Bless this wonderful nation that we call the United States of America. May we be salt and light in our neighborhoods, on the job, in our governmental facilities, in our dorms. May we live with joy and respond with respect. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.